Kevin. And this morning, I think we are getting ready to wrap up our uh, our Proverbs uh, stay here during the summer, and then we're going to go into one of the Old Testament books uh, in about three weeks or so, once we move to our new location, by the way, which should be coming up here in less than a month. But for now, uh, let us turn to God's Word, to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 through 30. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 through 30. If you are able to stand, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. The God of Word says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor, who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason, when he has done you no harm. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, because it contains the wisdom, Lord, that we need. As we speak today, Lord, about debts and debtors, let us be reminded that you, O oh Lord, have forgiven our debts, for that we praise you. Yet, Lord, we know that our wisdom will be tested and again and again by looking at what we do with anything that relates to wealth, to money, to possessions. It is the text that we have here before us now, Lord, that we ask will give us conviction and that you would guide us in understanding and in repentance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you have your, uh, your bulletin, you would notice that the title of this message is Stop Being a Bad Neighbor. Right? <laughs> it's uh, relatively straightforward. I think that we come to this passage and we realize that the things it's offering, the type of wisdom it is offering us, it talks about lending money, borrowing money, and how we should be a man or a woman of your word when it comes to these types of transactions. We are to be honorable in our dealings with money. We'll also see that we are called to be fair to our neighbor in our daily dealings when we have something that belongs to them. When they have done something for us and now we, we owe them, right? We're not entitled to free labor from our, from our neighbor. And we are told that if our neighbor needs something, and we have what they need, if we truly are Christians, it is our responsibility to come forth and bless them with that need that they have. And then lastly, that passage tells us to not plant evil against our neighbor and to avoid unwarranted conflict. The Bible doesn't say avoid conflict. It says avoid unwarranted conflict. And as far as it is up to you to be at peace with all men. Right? So the case for being a pacifist in the Bible does not exist. But it tells you to be very wise to pick your battles. And given that this is such a straightforward passage, 
the title is not being a bad neighbor, right? Take care of your dealings with your neighbor when it's when it's dealing with money. Don't be unfair to them, and don't contend with them. Don't fight with them unnecessarily. Now there are times that the biblical text that we read, especially in expository preaching as we go through books of the Bible, they're heavy on theology. And then we ought to find a practical application of that theology to our everyday life. You know, given a certain truth about Jesus, who he is, God, his holy character, how does that apply to me? And we need to find an application for that. And then there are times like today when we read the text, and it's pretty straightforward, right? Like, okay, I need to be honoring and, and dealing with money and dealing with my, my neighbors, right? Now, we need to be very careful when we come about a text that tells us this type of advice. Why? Hear me on this. If we follow this advice, will we have a better life? Will, be, will we be at better chances having peace with our neighbors? Absolutely. Yes, that's wisdom that comes from God. But this is not about simply saying, all right, my brothers and sisters, make sure you treat your neighbors well, and we'll call it a day. No, it's not it. No, we must go beyond that. When Scripture gives us direct application, as we have in our passage today, we must understand the why. Why should we conduct ourselves that way? And when we start asking the why, we should be conducting ourselves with good conduct. It is that we start to realize, why am I going to act with good conduct? Is it because, number one, I could be selfish? I want to be proud of others seeing me do good, and therefore, I can be in high esteem with others. I want to be looked at as somebody who does good. Ultimately, that's a selfish motive. Because even though you're doing good to others, the motivation is for others to think of me as good, right? Perhaps even with a desire to have good karma, right? I do good, then they're going to do good to me, right? On the surface, a good principle, but we must go beyond that. Second reason could be genuine benevolence. Somebody actually does want to treat their neighbors well. They want to be at peace, so they will go that extra mile to ensure that that happens. Now, that's even more commendable than just rather a selfish motive. But yet, there's either an option to stop there or for the Christian to go further. And if we are Christians, the call for us is to be on the path of sanctification. Meaning, day by day, I need to move closer to the character that God wants me to have. Therefore, I need to conduct myself accordingly. I need to train my thoughts, my desires, my daily doings so that they conform to a biblical worldview. And that's where we need to emphasize, not only doing good for the sake of doing good, but because as Christians, we ought to have that conviction that we need to honor God. If we honor God, it will follow that I'm going to honor my neighbor, right? As the first commandment tells us. So this is the key then. We conduct ourselves in this manner because we want to ascribe to a biblical world. We want to have a foundation for why we're acting as such. Right? So as a topic here of being fair, being a straight shooter, being honest with our neighbors, this is very applicable 
to anyone, even even if they're not Christians, right? Because our daily dealings with our neighbors having to do with money is a topic that often brings division within our close friends, acquaintances, even family members when we start to deal with money. So let us pull a couple of facts from studies that have been done that tells us that close interpersonal relationships are damaged due to dealing with money. So I'll pull two examples. The first one, a lady by the name of Jordan Bissell. She's a researcher on interpersonal relationships and mental health. She published a study this year in which she lists some top reasons why friendships, why relationships go sideways. One of the top three is said that there is an inconsiderate person taking advantage of the other person. And she says, I quote, do you have a friend who asks, asks always for favors on a consistent basis, but never agrees to help you in return? Specifically, maybe they regularly ask you to borrow money, but you will not be able to do the same, unquote. Then the article goes on to give more details some examples and then basically says that this, if this is a consistent pattern, the researcher says it's probably time for you to cut that relationship. It's not good for you. You're being taken advantage of. Secondly, according to a survey done in 2019 by, by Bankrate.com, it showed that of those people that lend money, 46% of those reported having a negative outcome. Pretty high rate. It's like a, almost a 50% fail rate. Of those who lend money, something went wrong. Practically speaking, this this uh, survey is pretty much saying, if you're thinking of lending money, think of it as a coin toss. 50-50 chance that it's going to end up bad, right? That survey also reported that it's a similar failure rate for co-signing of a loan. When someone convinces you of co-signing in order to help them, it was reported that it resulted in either a damaged relationship, ruined credit, lost money, or all of the above. Right? So we can quickly see how in our everyday lives, dealing with money can go wrong very fast. Right? I thought it, it a little bit um, humorous, but very true. In the Hispanic culture, when meeting somebody new or a new neighbor comes, you introduce yourself to them. It's commonly said that, you know, if you need anything, please know I'm here. So long as it's not money. <laughs> so from the get-go, you kind of tongue-in-cheek put it out there like, hey, I'm here to help you, but just don't come with me asking me for money. <laughs> right? There might be some wisdom to that, right? Now, so what did the studies conclude? What does the research show? basically says, avoid the pain, don't lend money. Just be clear, right? The question we should ask is, what does the Bible say? Well, scripture does not necessarily arrive at the same conclusion. However, it gives us insight to both the lender, the borrower, that they namely should honor God in all of their dealings. And if God is honored on both sides, it should all be good. However, and unfortunately, as we have the scripture before us today, it exhorts us, it reminds us, it even rebukes us into repentance because we do not always behave wisely 
when it comes to dealing with money with our neighbor. Not primarily, now listen, the Bible doesn't tell us, uh, tell us that primarily because we run the danger of a damaged relationship, although that's true. It doesn't tell us that, doesn't give us a warning, not primarily because we run the danger of giving a bad witness to those watching, although that's also true. But because in being a shady and irresponsible person when it comes to dealing with money, we are dishonoring the name of God, especially if we say that we're Christians. So this is the reason why scripture consistently warns us about the way we manage our wealth, our possessions, our money, our attitude towards money. As our Lord Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart also is. For many of us, if we are honest, we claim the name of Jesus, that he's our treasure, that the things of God is where we find our riches. But if we take a close look at how we manage our money, including our dealing with our neighbors when it comes to money, it tells a very different story. So my brothers and sisters, let us not be deceived. Wherever we place our treasures, whatever it is most important to us, especially when it comes to money, that's really what our heart is. This is a constant warning. So the common theme then here in this passage, when we read the instructions, the wisdom coming from God, let us think about this. Do we immediately take inventory? All right, well, who has wronged me? I want to get straight with them. They better pay up. Or can we and will we think of, who have I wronged? Have I repented? Have made reparations in the dealings with my neighbor? Because our default position is to quickly think of someone who has wronged me. Right? I'm, I'm the victim here. And scripture is consistent in telling us, wait a minute. First, you are an offender. What have you done? So then, it is here where we take a hard look. Hard look at the mirror. And tell that person, stop being a bad neighbor. Because that's what the Bible tells us to do. So these verses will be teaching us three things. One, to not withhold what is owed to your neighbor. Don't withhold what is owed. Secondly, don't withhold what your neighbor needs. And thirdly, don't withhold peace from your neighbor. Don't withhold what is owed. Don't behold what they need. Don't behold peace from so with that, let us dig in. Verse 27, not withholding what is owed to your neighbor. Straightforward, verse 27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, what it is in your power to do it. So the concept here is this. Think of it as you're looking at a scale. It's perfectly balanced. And temporarily, you take a little bit from that side, and now the scale is uneven. It's supposed to be temporary. But as time goes by, that scale never becomes balanced again. It remains in an unbalanced state. Something that was and now is not balanced. The word there to withhold, it means to keep away, to keep hidden, to hold back. The implication is 
that you have what should be repaid, or you can make do with what should be repaid, but you withhold it. Right? There's something there, but you withhold it. It is in your power to do it, but you withhold it. And then it said to not withhold good. <clears throat> the most direct application for the word good, of withholding good, is like the material things of the world, the goods. That particular word is used elsewhere in scripture. First John 3.17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Right, we'll come back to that verse in the next verse because it talks about withholding what your neighbor needs. That's a direct application of that. But here, we're looking at that to, look at, to take a look at the word goods. The application of withholding goods, withholding good from your neighbor, it means like the tangible things, like something your neighbor needs and you're holding back. Something that your neighbor is due and you're holding that back. But it can also be extended be to, be, beyond just the material things. We'll talk about that at the conclusion. Now, it says to whom it is due. Here, the language is owing or having something payable to as an appending debt. And it is often used in the Bible of a landowner who is owed fees. It is also used as a, of a citizen who is owed wages or an owner who has lent something. So that's the, the type of language that it refers to when it says to whom it is due. It's talking about a debt. So then we can confidently conclude that the scripture tells us that it is a wise thing to pay our debts. Go figure, right? Straightforward. But yet, there's a 50% fail rate of doing this. So obviously there's something wrong. Romans 13.8 concludes the same thing. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For him that loves has fulfilled the law. The context there is the borrower becomes a servant to the lender. And if you keep doing that perpetually, you're going to be a slave. Right? So both Solomon in Proverbs and Paul here in Romans agree that it is biblical wisdom not to owe money. To rather owe only brotherly love. If anything it is that we should owe is brotherly love. To love one another. Another way this has an application is when someone has performed a job for you and you don't pay them. Something that is due to your neighbor. And you're withholding it. The Bible is very clear about this. There's no sugarcoating. If you're doing this, the Bible says you're a thief. I'll show you. Jeremiah 22:13 says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing, and does not give him his wages. It's pretty straightforward. What's a classic case? Like, hey, he's my friend. He's not going to charge me. Right? Wrong. We are not entitled to our neighbor's free labor. By like manner, nobody's entitled to your wealth. Just because somebody knows that you have it, they have no claim on it. Right? But the other side of that cone is, of that coin is you're not entitled to anybody's free labor. You want to pay them. If you don't, you're a thief, the Bible says. You have built whatever it is that you're building with unrighteousness. So, 
by the same token, nobody's entitled to your to your wealth. We mentioned that, and this leads to hey, you have to work. If you're able, you have to be willing to work. That's the message of the Bible in regards to that. So now it says, when it is in your power to do it, the scripture implies here that you do have it, or you have a way to make meat, but you don't do it for whatever reason. Perhaps you're thinking, oh, you know what, I have it, but I actually need it more than my neighbor does, even though they let you borrow it, right? Because what if something goes wrong? I need to have a little rainy, rainy day fund or whatever. That's not responsible. But what if there are some times, many, many times, in which the debtor is not able to repay at that time? Then what would be something wise to do in that case? Well, first of all, it is honor, I mean, it is wise to honor your debtor in not being silent. Don't keep quiet. You need to speak. You need to come forth. You need to be a man or a woman of your word. It is also wise to make a plan, then remain honest to the plan. This is what we call, in our modern terms, in good faith. Make a plan in good faith and meet that plan. And then it is wise for your debtor to see this type of character in you as you owing, because that's going to be you honoring them and honoring God. Honoring your commitments. And now let me say this. If you are the debtor, do you think that you coming forth and you being honest and open, that that's going to give you some type of better favor with the one you owe, rather than just being shady? And then it would be wise to don't make promises that you can't keep. Another classic line Hey, can I borrow a hundred bucks? I'll pay you next week. I'm not get paid. <laughs> you know you're not gonna pay it. <laughs> it's a classic one, right? And then things get worse when uh, people have come to me and they've said, "Oh, you know, such and such person owes me money." Oh, look at their Instagram or their Facebook. They're over there having a blast, eating out, going on vacation. Where's my money? Right? It's classic. So don't make promises you can keep. And that would apply especially when asking for the loan initially. Don't trick your debtor into telling you're going to pay them back if you know you're not. Be honest. So then if you have been behaving this way, acknowledge it. Repent. Have a humble attitude towards your debtor that he may show you favor. And now let me say this. A word for creditors. What if you're the one that is owed? It is wise, according to Scripture, to be patient, to be humble, and to remember that you either have been or you someday will be in the shoes of the one that owes you. You are not to humiliate, you are not to abuse the person that owes you. That person is made in the image of God, and you ought to treat them as such. And then, if you're a creditor, Perhaps you should be wise next time somebody asks you for money. That is biblical wisdom. 
So not withholding to your neighbor what is owed to them. That's the first one. Number two, don't withhold from your neighbor what they need. Okay, verse 28, Proverbs 3.28 says, Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. what this is? You see a need and for whatever reason you're like tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, come back. And this person is going to go hungry. They're going to go without providing for their family for that time. They're going to have a, a time of misery until you make them go back the next day. And if we're honest, what do you think is going to happen the next day? another excuse right for not giving them what they need let us take a look at four scriptures here quickly that talk specifically about that first John 3 17 says but if anyone has the world's goods right we talked about the goods meaning the material possessions the things that somebody may need to live it says if you have those goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against them how does God's love abide in Another translation says, if you close the bowels of compassion that you have, but you have no compassion, how can you say that, that the love of God abides in you? It says you better check yourself. It's a warning. Galatians 2.10, it says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The setting there is Paul being sent to the Gentiles, and Peter reminded him to remember the poor. To remember to take care of the poor. And Paul says, yes, I, got, I was eager to do that. So that's something that I was going to do anyways. Remembering the poor because they have needs. Romans 12, 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is very important. Because as Christians, the first and foremost needs that we should be meeting are the needs of the Christians around us. Very important. There's other references to that, but that's basically the, the New Testament standard for charitable giving. And then one more, James 2.15, it says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? And then James goes on to say in the next verse that if that's you behaving that way, again, no sugarcoating, it says your faith is dead. In other words, you may check yourself because you may not even be saved. Right? Not because it's works, but because if you are saved, you should have fruit that shows your compassion. Right? So there are a few references that apply to Again, the daily lives, very practical, applicable to our lives. People that are your neighbors, people you can see, people that you know have needs and that you can help. Are we to pray for them? Yes. Primarily for their salvation if they're not saved. But also to pray for their needs to be met. How many times has somebody not come to you with a need and you have what they need and you say, pretty much what James told us here in 2.15, Oh, I'll be praying for you. Or even better, let me pray for you right now. And you're like, I have what they need. Right? 
I remember the case where a need was brought to the body of believers, the Christian community, and somebody said, okay, well, let's pray. And somebody said, no, we're going to take an offering right now, and whatever's left, I'm going to front it. And then we'll pray a prayer of thanksgiving. How about that? Can we adopt that type of attitude? Right? We must pray and do. We must do and pray. So then, a quick word of wisdom in regards to helping those that are in need. This is very particular. The biblical message is somebody that you know, somebody that's a neighbor, you can see the need. Don't let them go without having that need met. I mean, it's two things. Primarily, it doesn't mean that you perpetually keep helping this person when they are able but not willing to work. It doesn't mean that. Because then you're now enabling a lifestyle according to their choices that is going to enable them to keep living that way. Then you're no longer helping them. And secondly, when helping somebody in need, it doesn't mean that a third party comes and takes your money from you and then they do it, likely going into a bottomless pit of bureaucracy and never really making it to the people that need it. And you have no clue what happens to them. That's not the way the Bible refers to helping your neighbor. Somebody has an interpretation, I'm sorry, it's the wrong interpretation. That's not what the Bible refers to. We are to help primarily those in the body of Christ and then those in our community. And we are to be very generous. Make no mistake about it. Okay? So then that covers not withholding what your neighbor needs. And the third point here in this passage is not withholding peace from your neighbor. Don't withhold peace. Verse 29 and 30 say, Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. So now this can have multiple, multiple applications. But we're going to stick to the context that we have already followed from the previous two verses. The general theme being not to withhold peace from your neighbor when dealing with them on a daily basis of money and possessions. A way in which we can withhold peace from our neighbor, in this sense, is one, ask them to lend you money and then not pay you back. That, that could bring a lack of peace, right? Especially when you have a way to meet them, uh, to repay them, but you don't. It's a way to withhold peace. Secondly, when you ask them to do a job for you and you don't pay them, you think that's going to bring peace? And then thirdly, seeing that your neighbor has a need, that you're not providing that need. You think that's going to bring peace to them first, and then to you, to your conscience, to your, to your heart, if you're really a Christian. That shouldn't bring you peace, nor them. Now, mind you, these things are where your neighbor has a genuine need, right? The verse talked about, the person James talks, they have something that they need because they don't have clothing, or they don't have the daily provision of food, right? That's a need. It's not like your neighbor has a need for some type of luxury and they know you could make that happen for them and then they're mad because you don't. Well, that's not what it means. Make no mistake, right? So in any case, we see how those things could 
make for a, a lack of peace with your neighbor, withholding peace from your neighbor. And there's two things to highlight in those verses. First, it tells us that your neighbor dwells trustingly right beside you. He has trusted you. Your neighbor has trusted you and you've betrayed that trust. That's verse 29. Your neighbor has put their confidence in you, especially if they know you're a Christian. And the way you've acted towards them is betraying that trust. So it is here that we start turning to the final application of what does all this mean? Right? You betrayed that trust to your neighbor who has given you favor and you've become a bad witness. More on that shortly. And then secondly, the warning here is that your neighbor has done you no harm. As a matter of fact, they've shown you favor. They've been kind to you. And yet you're contending with them by withholding from them. When your neighbor has helped you, you betray their trust and contend with them in return. And then it tells us to not contend for no reason. Right? Let's not be foolish in our dealings. Let's pick our battles. The Bible tells us there will come a time when you need to contend with others. Right? You need to contend. Jude 1.3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common situation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. See, the Bible tells us to, to contend, meaning to make a vigorous or labored effort for something, to contend for the faith, for the gospel, for Jesus, for the truth of the Bible. We are to contend for that. When it comes to Jesus, His perfect life, His death, His resurrection, we will die on that hill. I'm going to contend on that. But we're not to contend with our neighbor unnecessarily. Rather, we ought to deal justly with them, not withholding peace from your neighbor when it's in the power to do so. So then, what are the takeaways here? Now that we've been told, don't withhold peace, don't withhold the needs, and don't withhold what your neighbor is owed. First, a couple of correct takeaways that will still will not be the ultimate conclusion. Correct takeaways from this literature, from this wisdom, from God's word, but they can still be wrong conclusions. The first one being, somebody can say, oh, finally, I got an easy one. Basically, I've learned that if I'm going to lend money, there's a 50-50 chance I'm going to get jipped. So, sight. No lending money. That's what I learned. I mean, unfortunately, that's a true aspect of what we're dealing with, right? But, although that may be, you know, like worldly wisdom or even something the Bible tells you to be careful with, it's still the wrong conclusion for the sermon, as valid as that may be. Another correct takeaway would be, hey, I got to get rid of my debt. I need to honor my debts. I need to pay those who, who work for me. Or I need to help my neighbor who is in need. I've really been lacking. Those are still good takeaways. But yet, not completely there. They're still wrong conclusions. 
Same goes with being at peace with your neighbor, not betray their trust. That's a, that's a correct takeaway. That's commendable. But yet, still the wrong conclusion for this message. So let's turn to that now then. Why is it that the Bible has a constant theme about talking money, possessions, and the way that we deal with those things? Well, because there's something much greater at stake than just money. After all, money's temporary. Right? All the gold and the riches of this world are temporary. They're going to pass away. But nevertheless, the way that we think about money, about possessions, about wealth, about owing, about borrowing, about money management, about planning for a future in regards to financial aspects, is the key indicator of the maturity or the commitment that we have towards God. Inevitably. Because we value money. So the way that we behave with money is a true gauge. It's a true compass that tells you where you're headed. When it comes to your attitude between you and God. Have a true look at how you, how you manage your wealth, your possessions, your dealings with money with others. It'll give you a true attitude about how you feel about God. If we honor God, we will strive to honor our monetary dealings. Because we hold money dear. Dear to us, right? It means protection. It means the providing for my household. It means security. It means comfort. So we hold money dear. The way that we treat that money is a true gauge, true indicator, true compass of our attitude towards God. And the more we deny that this is so, the more blind we will become to this truth. The more hardened that we will become to this truth. And hence, putting a stumbling block between me and my relationship with God. Rather, we should understand, we should accept the truths that God has told us in His Word today. That dealing honorably with our debts will help us mature in our relationship with God. And then lastly, we ought to remember that I'm a debtor, you're a debtor, everybody owes. How much, you may ask? Something that you never will be able to pay. All of us are debtors. How so? Well, you and I have run up an unimaginable debt towards God. <clears throat> Some of may think, what do you mean? I never ask God for money. Yeah, you've asked him for much more. He has given you life. We've rebelled against him. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even if we wanted to, we don't want to, and we can, but even if we wanted to repay God back, we can. Because the bill is too high. He told us to honor Him, we've dishonored Him. He told us to never have anything else above Him. We can't do that. He told us not to lust, we've lusted. He told us not to lie, we've lied. Right? So very quickly we start saying, oh man, I guess I, yeah, I felt so the Bible refers to that as a debt that we have against God. 
And when we come before our debtor, the one that we owe, unless we have full payment, we're in trouble. That's the ultimate debt to be paid. And the only way to pay that debt is by being perfect. Well, there we say, well, I'm out of luck again because I can't do it. I'm not perfect. You're right. You're not. However, there's hope. There's consolation for the people of God. Because God, knowing that we cannot pay that debt, He has come into creation Himself in Jesus, the God-man, in order to live a perfectly righteous life that is needed so that the debt that is owed to God can be paid. So then when we have our faith in Christ, acknowledging and admitting that He is holy, that He cannot stand sin, and that we put our faith in Jesus, His perfect life, His death, His resurrection, then that goodness of Jesus, that perfection of Christ, is now in our account so that we can pay that bill. Isn't that great news? And now when we come before the judge to pay what is due, then Jesus says, he's with me, she's with me. It's all good, it's paid. And we're made right with God, right? So then, here's the main takeaway, right? Here it is, if there was a test, this question will be in the test, what's the main takeaway then? If indeed Christ has paid our debt, we must necessarily be convicted to strive to deal fairly with our neighbor. See that? It cannot be the other way around. I want to be able to deal fairly with my neighbor and take care of my debts and honor those who I owe because I want to be a Christian. Wrong. You'll never be a Christian that way because you're going to fail. Rather, because I know that I'm a sinner, because I know that I need Jesus to forgive me and for him to be my savior and for him to pay my debt, if he has done that, I'm going to be so grateful. I'm going to be so joyful that now I want to live an honorable life. And one of the most true gauges to show that I am living an honorable life is how I deal with my money. See that? Otherwise, it could be just show and talk all day. But when it comes to the things that you most hold dearly, well, you hold them to yourself. And you deal unfairly and unwisely towards others, hence dishonoring the name of God. See that? So then may God grant us the conviction, the repentance, to walk in the newness of life that Christ gives us, that is required to love our neighbors as ourselves. That needs to come from God. We cannot do that ourselves. Then we can stop being a bad neighbor, as the title of the message says, and then we can rather be a Christian with a godly character, as it should be. May God grant us that. And we repent if we're not there. And if we don't know, if we don't know Jesus, the first step is to have Jesus pay our debt for us. It's not the other way around. May God make these things clear to us. And may we move forward in newness of life towards Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for your son, Jesus, Lord. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who has paid our debt, Lord. The debt we can never repay. Make us aware of this truth, Lord, so that we be, so that we would be grateful, that we would be thinking of how we can honor God in our everyday dealings, Lord, when it comes to our money, to our wealth, to our debt, to our debt. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.